Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we joined the fourth Doctor on his first adventure in the season 12 opener, Robot. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. First off, I will give you the story recap, and apologies if my voice sounds a small bit hoarse, I'm a bit under the weather, but we shall persevere. Part 1. To bring in air calls for the medical officer, Lieutenant Sullivan, to come to the lab at once. The doctor then starts to come to, repeating a statement he made to the brigadier during their encounter with the brontosaurus. However, he then begins to speak gibberish before falling unconscious again. Sullivan arrives and has a pair of orderlies take the doctor to the sickbay, and Sarah Jane goes with them. Benton arrives with a list of reports, and the Brigadier explains to the confused Benton about the Doctor's regeneration. Later that night, a weapons research facility is broken into, and a set of top-secret plans for a new disintegrator gun is stolen. The Brigadier goes over the theft with Sarah Jane, and theorises that a small commando unit must have infiltrated the site with some machinery to break into the vault containing the plans. He says that he wishes the Doctor was awake to go over the theft, saying that it is the kind of scenario that he would love. Sarah Jane then asks him to organise a visitor's pass for her so she can go visit Think Tank, a Frontiers research centre with high security clearance requirements. He brings her to his office and on the way they discuss Sullivan's old-fashioned demeanour. As they walk down the corridor, they fail to notice the doctor, wearing a hospital gown beneath his coat, sneaking back to the lab. He finds the TARDIS locked but then remembers the keys inside one of his shoes. Just as he is about to leave, Sullivan comes in and attempts to take him back to the sickbay. They then have a back and forth over the title of Doctor, with the Doctor claiming to be the definitive article. Sullivan says that he is not fit, and the Doctor angrily replies that he is, and gives a demonstration of his strength by chopping a brick in half and jogging on the spot. He gets Sullivan to check his heart rate, and the double heartbeat of his two hearts surprises Sullivan. The Doctor then says he is still getting used to his new body, and then catches his reflection and assesses his new appearance, saying his nose has improved, but he is uncertain about his ears. He then tries to leave again, but Sullivan stops him, and a frustrated doctor takes a length of rope and forces Sullivan into a game of jump rope while singing a nursery rhyme. The brigadier and Sarah Jane rush back to the lab after they discover the doctor missing when they went to visit him in the sick bay. They hear banging from one of the cupboards and discover Sullivan tied up. They then hear the TARDIS start to take off, and Sarah Jane bangs on the door to stop the doctor from leaving. He pops out to say goodbye, but Sarah Jane says that he can't go. He angrily says that there is no such word as can't before slamming the door shut. However, he opens it a few seconds later and asks why he can't go, and Sarah Jane says the brigadier needs his help to find the stolen weapon plans. He shows disinterest and then shuts the door again. Again, he appears a few seconds later and asks the brigadier where he recognises him from, at first guessing him to be either Hannibal or Alexander the Great, before finally recognising him as the brigadier. He then greets Sarah Jane before asking about the theft of the weapon plans. At that moment, another raid takes place, this time at a facility containing pieces of advanced equipment. This is reported to the Brigadier, who returns to the lab to inform the Doctor, and is surprised to see him dressed as a Viking. The Brigadier is shocked by his appearance, and says it is a bit conspicuous. The Doctor goes to change, and emerges dressed as the King of Hearts. Sensing this is also out of place, he changes again, this time appearing as a Perot-style clown. He changes one last time, this time in a Bohemian-style frock coat, wide-brimmed hat, and overly long, multi-coloured scarf. He then tells the exasperated Brigadier that they are wasting time and leaves for the site of the new theft along with Sullivan. They arrive and see a high voltage chain link fence torn apart. The doctor examines the ground and discovers a flattened dandelion and says that whatever stepped on it weighed at least a quarter of a ton. 
They'd go inside and the regulator says that only specific pieces of equipment were taken. The doctor says that the list of equipment taken is exactly what is needed to build up the powerful disintegrator gun. The doctor then says that whatever stole the equipment is incredibly powerful and dangerous and you need to prepare for the next attack as there is still one piece of equipment it needs, a focusing generator. The brigadier radios Benton and tells him to place all available air and land security assets around the factory house and the generator and then the doctor drives them off to the site. Sarah Jane arrives at Think Tank and is greeted by Hilda Winters, the director of the research centre and her assistant, Arnold Jellicoe. She is then given the tour of the centre and is told about what they do there, which is to bring advanced ideas to a practical stage and then hand them over to government agencies with bigger budgets to finish the projects. Sarah Jane then opens a door that forbids admittance and she sees the room is empty, but a sign on the wall says that it was the work area for Professor Kettlewell, a pioneer in advanced robotics who has as of late been working in the field of alternative sciences. Jellicoe and Winters try to get her out of the room as she comments on the musty smell and she nearly slips as she goes to leave, but Jellicoe helps her out. At the factory, the brigadier shows the doctor the security measures in place for the generator, which is in a casket, in a cell, in a vault, in a shed outside the factory. He says that the site is impregnable, but the doctor says that impregnable sounds too like unsinkable, reminding them of the Titanic. Benton arrives and says that all land and air approaches are being guarded, but the doctor reminds them that underground approaches are still unobserved. At that moment, a guard manning the vault doors hears a rumbling from inside and opens fire at the thief, which has dug its way into the cell. The doctor rushes to the vault with Brigadier Benton and Sullivan, and they find the guard dead with the cell doors ripped open and a large hole in the ground. They also see that the casket has been ripped open and the generator is gone. Benton gets a report that another hole has been found nearby, and they go to investigate it. They are confused by the fact that there is no proper tunneling equipment or props in the hole. He then shows them a set of large rectangular imprints in the ground that are twice as big as a man's foot. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane has managed to track Kettlewell, a wild-looking, erratic man, down at his house, where he informs her that he left Think Tank due to the direction their work was going, and instead decided to investigate alternative energy sources. She then asks if they could be carrying out his robotics work in his absence, but he denies it and bids her a good day. She leaves and decides to make her way back to Think Tank. She arrives at the security gate and tells the guard that she left a notebook in the robotics lab. The guard goes to call True for permission as her pass is almost expired and after he leaves, Sarah Jane sneaks out of the car and makes her way over the wall into the lab. She investigates the ground where she initially slipped and sees it as a large patch of oil. She then hears a door opening and a large robot enters the lab demanding who Sarah Jane is. Part 2 Sarah Jane flees from the lab and runs into Winters and Jellicoe, who says that the appearance of the robot was actually planned by them as they realised that she would probably try to sneak in and find it. After catching her breath, Sarah Jane accepts their offer of being shown the robot again. After a while, the robot appears with Jellicoe and Sarah Jane asks what its purpose is. The robot identifies itself as K1 and says that it was designed to replace human workers in dangerous but required occupations, such as mining and nuclear waste disposal. Winter stops K1 and when Sarah Jane asks why they were so secretive about the robot, she says that she abused the privileges granted to her through her visitor's pass. Sarah Jane apologises and then asks if K1 is dangerous, saying that it could potentially be used as a weapon in the wrong hands. Winters then tells K1 to kill Sarah Jane, saying she is a spy, but K1 begins to act erratically as if it cannot obey as causing harm would violate its prime directive. Winters tells K1 to stop and Jellicoe tells the startled Sarah Jane that the Prime Directive prohibits K1 from causing harm to humans. Sarah Jane says it was a cruel demonstration as it clearly caused K1 distress, but Winters says it is just a machine. 
Sarah Jane asks the robot if it is okay, but it replies that her concern is illogical before Winters orders it to deactivate. Sarah Jane coldly thanks Winters for the demonstration, but before she leaves, Winter tells her to keep quiet about what she saw, otherwise she would make public Sarah Jane's illegal trespassing in the lab. Sarah Jane leaves and Jellicoe chides Winters for the demonstration, saying that K1's recently reset inhibitor chip could have malfunctioned, but Winters sarcastically says it would have been an interesting test. Back at the doctor's lab, the Brigadier runs through several theories as to the identity of the culprits, including an alien invasion and agents of a foreign power. However, the doctor turns each of them down and says that the real culprits are nearby. He says that whoever they are, they must have access to funding because otherwise they wouldn't be capable of building the robot responsible for the thefts. This statement is echoed by Sarah Jane, who is explaining her encounter with K1 to Sullivan as they enter the lab. Sarah Jane then voices her suspicions to the Brigadier, but he says he will need permission to investigate them, but by the time he gets it, Winters will be able to hide any incriminating evidence. Sullivan suggests that they find someone qualified to act as a spy. The doctor suggests that Sullivan himself be selected due to his medical qualifications. The doctor then says that he would like to go visit Kettlewell. Meanwhile, at Think Tank, Jellicoe and Winters work on K-1. Jellicoe says they need to emphasise to K-1 that he must return after his mission, as the last time he went out, Jellicoe found him near Kettlewell's old house. Winters then shows K-1 an image of a man that she says is an enemy of humanity and must be destroyed. At Kettlewell's house, Sarah Jane informs the annoyed scientist that K-1 has been activated, but he refuses to believe her. The Brigadier then starts to argue with him, but the Doctor starts to talk about plans for a new solar battery that Kettlewell is working on, distracting him and flattering him about his work on it so far. Kettlewell begins to talk about the frustration of being a scientist, but the Doctor then asks him about K-1. Kettlewell says that he sadly had to deactivate him, as his capacity to learn and grow was developing too fast. He says that he patterned K-1's neural network after his own brain patterns, and says that if Winters and Jellicoe force him to break his prime directive, then he could go insane. At that moment, K-1 breaks into the house of his target using the newly assembled disintegrator gun and strangles the man before blasting open a wall safe and taking a document from inside it. At the doctor's lab, the brigadier shows him photos of the newest theft and says the man that was killed was a cabinet minister in charge of security. He then reads out the results of the security check he did on Think Tank personnel and he reveals that a few of them belonged to a fringe group called the Scientific Reform Society, which wanted humanity to be run rationally and scientifically. He reveals that recently more members have joined it after going to Think Tank, and he confirms that both Winters and Jellicoe are members of it as well. Sarah Jane then says that she is going home, but intends to investigate the SRS. The doctor then says to the Brigadier that they should go to Think Tank tomorrow so they can see the robot, and then says goodnight before turning out the lights. At Kettlewell's house, K-1 appears and tells its creator what it has done, and asks for help to deal with its emotional state. The following day, Sarah Jane goes to an SRS meeting. She interviews one of the greeters and realises that the group is actually radically conservative and believes that a self-appointed elite should rule and guide those of inferior intelligence and abilities. She's refused admittance to the meeting due to her limited intelligence and she leaves. Meanwhile, the Doctor and the Brigadier are led to Think Tank Robotics Lab by Winters, who says that K-1 was dismantled as it started to behave erratically after its encounter with Sarah Jane. The Doctor offers to help fix it, but Winters says that it has been completely destroyed in one of their furnaces. The Brigadier says he will need proof, but the Doctor says it isn't necessary. Jellicoe then arrives to say that she has a visitor, and the Doctor cheerfully says that they will meet again soon. En route, Jellicoe says that the visitor is actually an official from the Health Department who has come to do an inspection. Unbeknownst to them, it is actually Sullivan. 
At the doctor's lab, he admits to the brigadier that he doesn't believe Winters, but says that she knows that he doesn't believe her. The brigadier then leaves to speak to the prime minister to get authority to raid Ting Tank, and after he leaves, he gets a call from Kettlewell, requesting his help in dealing with K1. After Kettlewell hangs up, Winters and Jellicoe arrive. The doctor leaves a note for Sarah Jane, and then leaves in Bessie. A short while later, Sarah Jane arrives at the lab with Benton, who is explaining his recent promotion to Warrant Officer Class 1. She finds the note which says the doctor has gone to Kettlewells, fully expecting a trap which he can deal with, but says he left the note in case he couldn't deal with it. Frustrated, she leaves to go after him, and Benton follows after her. At Kettlewells, the doctor encounters K1, who says that it must destroy him as he is an enemy of humanity. The doctor does his best to avoid K1 by using marbles to try and trip him, as well as his scarf, but it is no use. After a couple of close shaves, he seemingly manages to deactivate K1 by placing his hat over his optical sensors, but it is a ruse and the robot clubs the doctor to the ground before standing over him. Part 3 Sarah Jane bursts in and tells K1 to stop, saying that the doctor is not an enemy. K1 remembers her from the lab and Sarah Jane tries to make him see that Winters and Jellicoe are trying to make him act against his programming. K1 says that it is suffering as a result of the conflicting programs going through its neural network. Suddenly Benton bursts in and despite Sarah Jane's pleas, he opens fire on the robot. K1 breaks through the back door and flees the scene, impervious to the bullets from the other unit troops trying to stop him. Benton asks if the doctor is alright and Sarah Jane starts to give out to him for opening fire, but stops when she realises that he didn't know they weren't in danger. They suddenly hear banging from nearby and Benton finds a tied up kettlewell in a nearby cupboard. They take him back to the doctor's lab and he tells them about Winters and Jellicoe's arrival and their reprogramming of K1 while Sarah Jane treats his injuries. He then reveals that K1 is constructed of an alloy that he created that can actually grow as like a living organism. He says that he created K1 in order to help break down and remove all the metallic waste currently polluting the planet. Benton arrives with some tea for them both and as they are drinking it, Catterwell spots an SRS pamphlet that Sarah Jane brought back from the meeting. He says he went to one of the meetings before, but left as he didn't agree with their ideologies. Sarah Jane suggests that he attend the meeting happening later that night and so he can smuggle her in, thereby allowing her to get the proof the Brigadier needs to raid them. Benton objects, saying that he should wake the doctor, but Sarah Jane says that he needs his rest after his encounter with K1. Benton then tries to order them to stay, but she points out that neither of them are unit personnel and they leave. Later that evening, the brigadier gives out to Benton for letting Sarah Jane and Kettlewell go, but Benton uses Sarah's excuse of authority. The brigadier reveals that he wasn't able to get the approval to raid Tink Tank, but the doctor suddenly appears and says that they will need to go without it. He says he knows why the security minister was killed, but asks the brigadier to confirm his suspicions. The brigadier informs him that the three primary superpowers of Russia, the US and China all agreed to give details of their hidden nuclear missile facilities to a neutral country for safekeeping with the intention that if any of them made an aggressive move, that the details would be released. They all contemplate the devastating holocaust that would ensue if Tink Tank used the missiles to attain the power they wanted. The brigadier says that the SRS is a recruiting front for the group, and then reveals that Sarah Jane has gone to the meeting with Kettlewell, a fact which shocks the doctor. At the meeting, Kettlewell sneaks Sarah Jane into the meeting, where she takes cover behind a group of boxes. She is then stunned to see Kettlewell be brought onto the stage by Winters, who is giving an inspiring speech to the other members, and watches as K1 is revealed. Winters tells them that K1 will seek out and destroy their enemies, and then watches as it comes down off the stage and smashes the boxes, revealing her behind them. Just as she is about to be apprehended, the Doctor appears on stage and begins to perform a comical vaudeville act to distract them, but he is also captured. He then asks Kettlewell why he is helping the SRS, 
and he says that they are helping him save the planet. Winters then says that they will need to kill the intruders and tells the squeamish Kettlewell that they are too dangerous to be left alive. Suddenly the Brigadier and Benton burst in and the Brigadier says that he has the building surrounded. Winters though uses Sarah Jane as a human shield to escape while Jellicoe uses K-1 and they get into a van and drive away. The Doctor reveals Kettlewell's deception to the Brigadier and says that they need to find where Winters and the others have gone quickly. Benton says that he has Sullivan on the radio who tells them that Tink Tank facility is being evacuated to a bunker. However, before he can reveal any more, he is knocked unconscious and taken away. The Brigadier thinks he knows where they are and then drives into an atomic fallout shelter that was built by Tink Tank and Benton sets up a security perimeter around the area. Inside the bunker, Winters orders the automatic defences to be activated and the Doctor tells everyone to take cover when he sees an automated machine gun emerge from a nest above the bunker entrance. Winters then calls the Brigadier, who demands her surrender, but she refuses and says that she has Sarah Jane and Sullivan as hostages. The Brigadier repeats his demand for her surrender or he will attack. She again refuses and this time says an ultimatum has been sent to the gov- every government in the world and if it is not met within 30 minutes then they will launch the nuclear missiles using the code stolen from the security minister's safe. The Brigadier, refusing to kowtow to her, orders Benton to find any other machine gun nests and destroy them with grenades. Once that's done, the Brigadier orders his men to advance but the doctor stops them before using his sonic screwdriver to remotely set off the mines hidden near the entrance. He then uses the screwdriver to begin cutting through the lock. Winters watches the attack through a security monitor and tells Kettlewell to start the missile launch sequence. He says that he will take time and Winters tells Jellicoe to arm K-1 with the disintegrator gun so he can buy them some time. Jellicoe tells the robot that they are under attack from the enemies of humanity and Sarah Jane begs K-1 not to listen to it but is no use. The doctor hears the doors opening and it tells the brigadier to order his men back as he knows that something is coming out to face them. They watch as K-1 emerges and disintegrates one of the soldiers that moved forward to, to snipe at him. The Brigadier then calls up a tank that he earlier requested, but the Doctor says it won't work, and a few moments later they watch as K-1 disintegrates it, before telling them to leave or they will all be killed. Part 4 Inside the bunker, Kettlewell is shocked when Winters tells him that she actually intends to launch the missiles, and she forces him to start the launch sequence, which will fire the missiles in 5 minutes. She then goes with Jellicoe to check her food supplies and tells Kettlewell to keep an eye on things outside. Jellicoe then asks what they are going to do with Sarah Jane and Sullivan, and Winter says that they will have to be killed later as they can't afford to feed them. Unbeknownst to them, the duo manage to get free and make their way to the control room, where they see Jellicoe stopping Kettlewell as he attempts to smash the countdown computer. Sullivan struggles with Jellicoe before managing to knock him out. Sarah Jane asks if he can abort the countdown, but he says they can only pause it and they then rush to the exit. Outside, the Doctor informs the Brigadier that the range on the disintegrator gun is nearly limitless and asks that he create a diversion so he can get back to the entrance and finish cutting through the lock. Suddenly, they see Sarah Jane and the others emerge from the bunker and the Doctor makes his way towards them as Sarah Jane pleads with K-1 to let him pass so he can stop the countdown. K-1 enters another emotional state as it begins to struggle with its new programming and Kethwell tries to reach out to him, but the erratic robot kills its creator with the disintegrator one. K-1 then falls to the ground in a fit of distress and the Doctor leads Sarah Jane and Sullivan back into the bunker. The Brigadier follows close behind and takes the disintegrator one from the motionless robot. They arrive at the control room to find Winters reactivating the countdown sequence. Sarah Jane picks up Jellicoe's gun from the floor and threatens to shoot Winters unless she stops the sequence and the Brigadier angrily demands that she cancel it. Winters arrogantly states that there is no stopping the launching of the missiles 
The Brigadier orders Benton to take her and Jellicoe away. The Doctor then rushes to the control station and manages to stop the sequence after two seconds. Sarah Jane then remembers something and heads back to the room where she was held captive, but comes across K-1. Outside, Benton reports that Winters and Jellicoe managed to get away after they were placed in custody, and he also reveals that Sarah Jane is missing. The Doctor says that they need to find her, as K-1 will most likely seek her to help navigate his emotional distress. He says that he will need to find some way to destroy him, as conventional weaponry won't work. Benton then recalls what Kettlewell said about K-1 being made of living metal, and the Doctor thanks him for the information, and then leaves for Kettlewell's lab, with the Brigadier sending Sullivan to accompany him. Inside the bunker, K-1 tells Sarah Jane that it intends to destroy humanity, but that it will keep her alive. It then leads her outside and nearly kills a unit guard, but Sarah Jane stops K-1. K-1 then leads her to the control room and restarts the countdown sequence from the start, and locks Sarah Jane to the ground when she tries to intervene. K-1 then says that once humanity is destroyed, it will create a machine race to inhabit the Earth. At Kettlewell's lab, the Doctor works to create a virus that the dead scientist was working on to help him with his recycling plan. The Brigadier calls him and tells him about K-1 locking itself in the bunker with Sarah Jane, and the Doctor realises that the robot is suffering from a massive Oedipus complex. He remembers that the power is still on to the bunker, and asks the Brigadier to shut it off, but when he is told that it can't be done, he advises the Brigadier to contact the superpowers and have them prepare their emergency failsafes. The failsafes are operated with seven seconds to spare, and Sarah Jane pleads with K-1 to give itself up, but it leads her out of the bunker instead. At Kettlewells, the Doctor enthusiastically tells Sullivan, who he now calls by his first name, Harry, that they have succeeded, and he leads him back to the bunker. K-1 emerges from the bunker with Sarah Jane, and the Brigadier tells his men to hold their fire in case they hit her. He then uses the disintegrator gun against the robot, seeing that they may be able to stop it without the Doctor's help. However, K-1 begins to grow after it is hit by the gun, and it grows to nearly 40 feet tall. Sarah Jane tries to run away, but falls over, and K-1 picks her up and makes his way through the countryside to the nearest village. He then puts her on the rooftop before turning to face the unit troops as they open fire on it with bazookas and heavy machine guns, which prove to be ineffective. The unit troops are forced to retreat as the robot rampages towards them, crushing a few under its feet as it tears through the buildings. The Doctor arrives and informs the bashful brigadier that the robot fed off the energy provided by the disintegrator gun. He then gets Harry to drive Bessie towards K-1 and then flings the metallic virus at it as they pass. They drive back to the brigadier and watch as the virus spreads through K-1's body, forcing it to shrink down to the size of a child before completely decomposing. Later at his lab, the doctor tries to comfort her despondent Sarah Jane by offering her a jelly baby before saying he had no other choice. Sarah Jane sadly agrees and they comment on how human K-1 was. The doctor then suggests taking a trip somewhere, but Sarah Jane says they can't leave without telling the brigadier. The doctor then throws a little tantrum over the fact that the brigadier wants him to attend a dinner with the queen after writing a full report on the incident. Sarah Jane then takes the jelly baby and together they make their way to the TARDIS. Before they leave, Harry enters wearing civilian clothes and they ask him to join them. He scoffs at the idea of being able to travel anywhere in the battered old police box, which hurts the doctor's feelings, and despite Sarah Jane's warning, he tricks Harry into the TARDIS. They then leave just as the brigadier arrives, and he says he will have to tell the Queen that they will be late for dinner. End of the story. Now that's the story recapped, we're going to go to the trivia spot. So Trish, what have you got for us on this auspicious new era? (laughs) 
Well, thank you for the recap. I know that wasn't easy as you're feeling under the weather. Mm. Trivia for Robot. So, the air date of the story is the 28th of December 1974 to the 18th of January 1975. Our writer is Terence Dix. This is the second of six stories written by Terence, who proves he saw his work in the War Games. And we'll see it again in The Brain of Morbius-ish, and I'll explain that when we get to that story, Horror Fang Rock, State of Decay, and The Five Doctors. Terence also wrote the novelization for the story, as well as many, many, many other stories. Terence had been working as the script editor on the show up until Planet of the Spiders, which is last week's episode. And he'd been the script editor since the invasion. So he was the script editor for the end of Troughton and all of John Pertwee's run, which is great. Taking over from Terence is Robert Holmes, who we've also discussed before. Mm Mm-hmm. Terence kind of realised that he's now going to be like a freelance writer. You know, he's not going to have a steady paycheck. So he convinced Robert that there was this tradition within Doctor Who that the outgoing script editor got to write the first story of the new season. <laughs> which is a load of bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> Terence just made it up. But Bob said, Grand, you can, you can write the first story. Mm. Unsurprising to pretty much anybody, Terence's main influences in this story were King Kong, and Isaac Asimov's I, Robot. I also felt there's a small bit of Frankenstein in there, I think. There is a bit, yeah. I don't think people think about this one as much with Frankenstein because there's a, there's a story later on that is yeah, very much yeah. Frankenstein-esque. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I can see that too. The director for the story is Christopher Barry. This is directing credit 8 of 10 for Christopher. We previously saw his work in The Daleks, The Rescue, The Romans, The Savages, The Power of the Daleks, The Demons, and The Mutants. Hmm. We'll see his work again in The Brain of Morbius and The Creature from the Pit. This is the only one of his stories that doesn't start with the word the. You're right. (laughs) Which I only just realised is that's really it. Finally, a combo breaker for Christopher Barry. (laughs) This story had the working title of The Giant Robot, which is the name of the target novelisation. This is the last time we see the third Doctor's lab. Not going to be seeing that lab set anymore. Uh, it's also the last story to feature Bessie until the Five Doctors. So no more Bessie for the foreseeable future. And it's the last occasion where the current Doctor drives Bessie until Battlefield, which is like the Seventh Doctor's last season. Yes, I it think. is. The, I think no, it is the last season. This was the first Doctor Who serial to have both location and studio material shot on videotape, as opposed to the usual practice of only using video for exteriors or using film for exteriors and video for studio Mm. Uh, the reason for this was that there was so much visual effects required it was easier to do that with videotape than it would have been with film yeah because it is it's actually jarringly noticeable that the exterior shots are done on videotape as opposed to film because we've been so used to for the last however many years yeah, but I think I think having all of it done one way is actually quite good because like there's obviously in previous stories you have the contrast of video versus film where like the exteriors like feel completely different, whereas this feels like a nice flow. Oh, and that's like, the strange thing, like because it's like now that it's actually all um, uniform, mm. it's so jarring with the fact that it's the it's, you know, it's jarring that it yeah. is uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Benton is promoted to warrant officer, as you mentioned in your recap, which entitles mm. him to be addressed as Mister. Mm. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, but that's where Mister Benton comes from. Yeah. 
this isn't reflected in the credits, though, which still give him the rank of sergeant. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> which is a bit shit. The story also is the debut of new opening title sequence. Obviously, we're changing the Doctor, so John Pertwee is out and replaced with Tom. There's also the TARDIS police box exterior is used as well. And this is the first time in which the title sequence changed, but the series logo didn't. Which I hadn't realised that the series logo usually coincides with the title change. But now that I think about it, that makes perfect sense. Mm. This is actually the first story that uses the Brigadier's full name. We didn't know his middle name was Gordon before now. Well, you and I knew it. Yeah. It wasn't actually said on screen before now. Yeah, it's always it's always just been Alistair Lethbridge Stewart or Lethbridge Stewart. Yeah, so I I hadn't realised that until I read it. I was like, actually, now that you mention it, uh, yeah, this is the first time that we get his full name. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned last week that parts of this story were recorded at the same time as parts of Planet of the Spiders, which meant that not only were John Pertwee and Tom Baker playing the Doctor at the same time, but Elizabeth Sladen and Nicholas Courtney and John Levine were rushing back and forth between the two productions. Mm. Now I said last week that that kind of had a bit of an impact on Elizabeth Sladen getting to know like Tom Baker and Ian Martyr, who plays Harry, because those two were able to sort of bond in rehearsals and stuff, whereas Liz was running around between two productions. And she said later on that not by any sort of um, ill intent on either of their parts, they were both lovely. Uh, she kind of felt like the third wheel sometimes because they kind of bonded as the new guys together and then she kind of just turned up Yeah. after being off doing Planet of the Spiders, which is a little bit sad, I think. Also, I, I meant to bring it up last week, but wasn't there a thing about how when they did the regeneration sequence, hmm. like John just got up and like said goodbye and walked out. He didn't really stick around to... Yeah, I've heard that as well. Like, I mean, they were obviously still filming, so mm. John just got up and left, and Tom laid down. So there was no yeah. um, fanfare over it. Mm. Now I'm sure they obviously celebrated later, but um, it was pretty much like continuing to film. But, like, I, but as you say, like I suppose it's the, by the fact that they were filming two stories concurrently, whereas. Like obviously, I think it's more like there's like the very fa- now famous video of David Tennant's emotional goodbye speech on the set. Yeah. But by I suppose by virtue of the fact that you were just shooting blocks and we no longer do the whole carryover of mm. last two minutes of a story enters into the first two minutes of the new story. Yeah. There is a bit more time for handshakes and all that type of jazz. Oh yeah, yeah. completely. This is the first story to introduce a new companion since the Wheel in Space. To not be written by Bob Holmes. But script edited by Bob Holmes. So it still counts. Yeah, there's a Bob Holmes mind. connection. <laughs> Professor Kettlewell's hair. Mm. That was actually a suggestion of Edward Burnham who played Professor Kettlewell. Because his hair does that actually normally. If he lets <laughs> his hair grow out, it'll, that, that's the way it grows. And so <laughs> they decided to keep it. Do you know what it reminds me of? Home Alone 2 after Marv gets electrocuted. <laughs> Obviously, also has a little bit of a Einstein esque yeah. look to it. Although it's greatly exaggerated, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the Doctor comes out in many different clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sort of mentioned the sort of Piero uh, clown outfit. Um, he also came out dressed as kind of a Norse Viking type outfit. Yeah. 
Um, and then he also came out dressed as the King of Hearts. Um, mm. That actually came from a 1972 musical version of Alice in Wonderland. Although the hat that he wears was worn by the Knave of Hearts. Mm. Particularly, be- you know, presumably because Tom Baker had a very large head. Yes, big curly mop of hair on him. Terrence said that he drew on the Avengers episode The Mauritius Penny, which he co-wrote Malcolm Hulk, um, when he was doing the story, particularly the scene in which Sarah Jane infiltrates the Scientific Reform Society. He kind of reused some ideas that he'd done in that Avengers story. That actually is kind of an interesting point because when Harry is introduced as, like, Mr. Sullivan from the Ministry, He's wearing like a bowler hat, kind of like the type yeah. that John Steed would wear. Like he even has like a very Patrick McNee look about him. Yeah, it's a, very, it's a lot of sort of nods here and there, yeah. um, which is great. And obviously we get the nod to James Bond as well, mm. um, which Sarah uses as a compliment and then later as an insult. As an insult. <laughs> which is great. Uh, Terrence also admitted like he had no idea what the fourth Doctor was going to be like. Mm. So he was based on Tom you know they didn't really have an outline for the character yet this story pretty much is the outline for the character so so i looked at tom and went okay (laughs) just based it around tom this story would go on to inspire one of mine and patty's favorite audio series ever Mm -hmm. which is the first season of the sarah jane smith spin-off series by big finish it is awesome you should all listen to it it is amazing it is so fucking good because in in like obviously the last couple of years, you know, audiobooks, Audible, you know, all like, have become a really big thing. And while audiobooks are good, audio dramas are fucking fantastic. Oh yeah. And then Unca- this spin-off is an audio drama, which yeah. is so like it's a multi a multicast and it's also as far as I'm aware, they're all in the same room as they're recording it so you do yeah. get that sort of feeding off each other type vibe yeah. which is not there anymore in modern audio recordings well yeah it's because they can't be in the same room no 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 but like even uh, when um like say for cartoons like well, yeah yeah like i uh, go back to the 90s like the x-men that was mm. all shot shot on a theater stage they were all like around each other Whereas yeah. like modern cartoons now they're all in separate booths in like different times, different days, all that kind of stuff. I think Big Finish does try to keep people together as much as possible. Yeah, because it, it really, um, it adds to the atmosphere. It adds to, actually adds to the chemistry, I think. Yeah, obviously the exception obviously being of the last Mo- few years. Modern, yeah, modern days. The model tank. Hmm. Christopher Barry has mm-hmm. defended himself when it mm-hmm. comes to the model tank. Basically saying that he thought it would be shit. And he didn't want to do it, but mm. Barry Letts and designer George Gal- Galacio, Galacio didn't take him seriously. They thought it would be fine. Now, I must say, as someone that has watched many a kaiju movie from mm. the 50s and 60s, this was actually not a bad shot. I, th- I thought it looked good. It's alright. Do you know, it's fine. But, like... I think they could have done without showing it in the reprise. Mm. You know? <laughs> Interestingly, uh, Christopher Bride did consider Colin Baker for the role of Jellicoe in this story. While it would have been good, I think mm. it would have been a bit of a waste of Colin's talents. I think so too. Although I do like the guy who plays Jellicoe as well. Oh, I think no, don't, really don't, don't get me wrong. But I, I will discuss Jellicoe you know, when mm. we get to it. 
but I think for someone of Colin's really good talents, I think that would be a small bit of a waste of a character. I think if you're going to put Colin into a role, he has to be primary antagonist. Mm. Or protagonist. <laughs> or protagonist. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, this is the last regular cast appearance of Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier and John Levine as Benton. While we will see them in a few more stories, this is their last you know, story as part of the regular cast. Mm. Continuing on, they're sort of guest actors coming back to reprise their roles. On to our cast, though. So, as Helen Winters, we have Patricia Maynard. This is her only on school on school. This is her only on-screen Doctor Who credit. However, she does reprise her role in that previously mentioned Sarah Jane Smith series for Big Finish. Mm-hmm. Her non-Who credits include Dixon of Doc Green, Doomwatch, The Last of the Mohicans, The Sweeney, Crown Court, Hammer House of Horror, Casualty, and The House of Elliot. Jellicoe is played by Alec Lindstedt, who is the second of three appearances by Alec. We previously saw him as Sergeant Osgood in The Demons. That's and we'll where I recognise him again from. in Revelation of the Daleks. His non-Who credits include Nicholas Nickleby, Angels, Anna Karenina, Crime and Punishment, Tucker's Luck, Lovejoy, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and Goodnight Sweetheart. Professor Kettlewell is played by Edward Burnham, as I already mentioned. This mm-hmm. is the second and final appearance for Edward. We previously saw him in The Invasion, where he played Professor Watkins. Mm. Edward's non-who credits include Quartermass in the Pit, Emergency Ward 10, The Saint, The Avengers, Ten Rollington Place, Nicholas Dickleby again, and Oliver Twist. Edward passed away in 2015. The K-1 robot is played by Michael, K- Michael Kagar. This is the third appearance for Michael. We previously saw him in The Tomb of the Cybermen, where he was the cyber controller, and in Frontier in Space, where he played the second Overrun. <laughs> we'll mm. see him again in Attack of the Cybermen, and he also appears in a number of audiobooks. Harry Sullivan is played by Ian Martyr. This is not the first time we have seen Ian on Doctor Who. We previously saw him in Carnival of Monsters, where he, again, plays a naval lieutenant. <laughs> Ian will go on to play Harry in seven stories. He also wrote a number of Doctor Who target novelizations and the novel Harry Sullivan's War. Ian passed away in 1986 on his 42nd birthday after suffering a heart attack brought on by complications of his type 1 diabetes. However, even though he passed away in 1986, one of his unreleased stories did see the light of day in 2019. Scratchman was a story written by Ian Martyr and Tom Baker as a script originally for a potential feature film that they wanted to make. Sadly, the film never was made due to lack of funding, but in 2019, Tom Baker released the story as a novel. Ian received an acknowledgement as a friend and a good egg at the end of the novel, and was presented in such a way that it also implies the existence of a fictional Ian Martyr who lives within the Doctor Who universe and was a friend of the Doctor, which I love. Mm. Scratchman is also amazing. It is. And you should read it or listen to it because Tom reads it and it's... It's fantastic. I would actually love to listen to Tom's description of it because it's it's very atmospheric. Hmm. Very atmospheric. It's really good. Yeah. Um, would recommend if you have a spare audible credit on you. Mm-hmm. Then we have the fourth Doctor played by Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom was born in Liverpool in 1934. He left school at 15 to become a novice monk and he remained a romantic life for about six years. 
After which, he left to go into the merchant navy. At the same time, he took up acting as a hobby. In 1971, he got his first break playing Rasputin in the film Nicholas and Alexandra. His other roles included Lynch in The Mutations, Jenkin in the Miller's Tale segment of the Canterbury Tales, and probably the one that a lot of people will recognise him for is Dr. Ahmed El-Kabir in the BBC television version of The Millionaires, which co-stars Maggie Smith. He was also in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which is where Barry Letts saw him, and it was that role that largely led to him getting the role as Doctor Who. I love that movie. I... I first saw that movie when I think I must have been about 10. And mm. uh, now I love Ray Harryhausen stop motion movies. They're mm. really, really good. And Tom Baker is so creepy in it. <laughs> I've actually seen his scenes from the Alex- uh, Alexander and um, the Rasputin movie. Yep. Uh, Nicholas and Alexandra. Alexandra. And Jesus, he is so unnerving as Rasputin. It, it, mm. it is re- like with the hair, the uh, the baggy eyes, it's like the insanity that is Tom Baker is on full display as Rasputin. Mm. It's it's just fucking unnerving. I then with the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, it's a great adventure movie. It's it's so much fun. <laughs> Tom will go on to play the Doctor from nineteen seventy four to nineteen eighty one. Though after leaving the show, he was hesitant to return to the role even skipping out on having an appearance in The Five Doctors, he did reprise his role in the Children in Need special Dimensions in Time. He also returned to the main show in 2013 for the 50th anniversary episode The Day of the Doctor, in which he played the cameo role of the Curator, which is sort of a future possible incarnation of the Doctor, making him the only actor to play two different incarnations of the Doctor, if we're taking the Curator as being yeah 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 he's also starred in a number of big finish stories with his run on big finish now exceeding his original run on the show (laughs) tom's other credits after who include the curse of king tut's tomb the zany adventures of robin hood dungeons and dragons the book tower the hound of the baskervilles jack and nori blackadder 2 the silver chair little britain for which he was the narrator for i think every episode yes yeah Monarch of the Glen, and Star Wars Rebels. Apparently, he was also rumoured to be up for the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings after his Dungeons & Dragons performance. That would be very interesting. I, again, childhood memories of The Silver Chair, one of my mm. earliest memory because that's the Chronicles of Narnia adaptation yeah. by the BBC, and one of my distinct memories of that is he plays uh, the character Puddleglum, sorry, mm. Puddleglum, and I just always have this vivid memory of the cliffhanger being the kids think that he is crushed by a rock thrown by a stone giant. And it's actually very disconcerting to watch that as a small child. Uh, what, there was other, one other thing that he was, I'm pretty sure he was in that show Fort. What the fuck is it called? Fort Boyar. It's, you know, that it's like the content, the game show based on a, an old Napoleonic fortress mm. on a fucking Island. I just remember, like, I haven't watched all of Star Wars Rebels, but I do remember, like, being told, like, Tom Baker's in it, like, cool. And yeah. I was, like, finding his clips online. <laughs> yeah, he, he's pretty cool in that. As well as the previously mentioned Scratchman, Tom also wrote other books, including The Boy Who Kicked Pigs, which is a weird, brilliant, creepy, fantastic little book. 
yeah, it's like very the, Roald Dahl esque. It, it's like the dark side of Roald Dahl, and it, it's just so very Tom. It's brilliant. Mm. Uh, he also wrote "Never Wear Your Wellies in the House" and other poems to make you laugh. And then his autobiography, "Who on Earth Is Tom Baker?" Two more, sorry, two more things that spring into mind for Tom Baker. One mm. is his uh, the show Dead Ringers, where John Coleshaw dresses mm. up as him and then like they have a back and forth as like tom baker talking mm. to tom baker that's brilliant and also he on like the fast show spin-off uh swish tony mm. he played like this 70s 80s kind of like those weird campy nudie horror movies like for, like from like not quite hammer horror but in around that mm. era and like he uh, like swish tony's a massive fan of him and it's just tom baker like completely having it up <laughs> but like there's one thing right there for um he's cameraman is in a wheelchair and like kenny baker is also in it as um like he's pretending to be swish tony and the guy goes like oh jesus christ like you've got bloody davros and r2d2 shooting this movie <laughs> Oh, Tom is great in fairness like I've met him before um, he is also um, of the classic doctors mm-hmm. he is the as in like the earliest incarnation mm-hmm. still living of course um, like even though he kind of distanced himself from who for a little bit like he didn't come back for the five doctors and stuff mm-hmm. he is so amazing with fans at events he's fantastic um like he gets like mountains of jelly babies given to him at events and he's just oh he just loves it and he's so sweet particularly with little kids it's like he'd be like you know i am the doctor like and he just plays it as if he is the doctor and there's no like oh you i'm the doctor's friend or anything like that that you might see from some other actors he's like no i am the doctor and he just plays it straight i remember like when i met him it was gosh 12 years ago now maybe um and there's a little boy dressed as a cyberman and Aww. like it, i think the kid was like five mm. and tom just like i'd say he was talking to him for maybe 15 minutes <laughs> uh, i only remember that specifically because i was dying for a wee and i was next in the queue behind the little boy and <laughs> kind of going, this is lovely you're very sweet tom i'm dying for a whiz though can you, <laughs> can you hurry it along <laughs> Actually, I remember reading the thing where he, I think the reason that he didn't come back for the five doctors is because it wasn't actually long after his departure from the show. Mm. Whereas like Patrick Troughton had been gone from the show nearly, what, like three and a half years. And because mm. of the long, the longer, um, the longer story length per, the longer episode length per story, mm. that run, it actually it would have been really less time, so it would have just been as if like he had been gone and then come back not that long after. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we'll get to that when we talk yeah. about the five doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you very much for all that lovely trivia. You are more than welcome. So now we're going to go on to the character discussion. So as always, we have the Doctor, the companions, along with any prominent characters, and then the villains of the piece. So this week we have the Doctor, uh, companions of Sarah Jane, the Brigadier, Benton, and Harry Sullivan, Doctor, or Okay, he's a Doctor, but also a Lieutenant. So how does that work? Is it just Doctor primarily? No, this is from a guy who's watching up Star Trek. When Yeah, I mean, like, Beverly is a Doctor, 
and a commander. A commissioned offense officer, yeah. yeah. Also, just, just pointed out there, purely out of spite. Yes, CBS, Beverly existed. Mm-hmm. Just putting it out there. You can say her name. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm not bitter or anything. Um, Absolutely. I not. think it goes. I think in Stargate, mm-hmm. it went military title first. So, okay. like, Sam was Captain Doctor. Gotcha. So it would be Lieutenant Doctor Harry Sullivan. Okay, cool. So, yeah, Lieutenant Doctor Harry Sullivan. Uh, then we have. Now, we have four other characters. There's Winters, Jellico, K1, and Kettlewell. Now, obviously, Winters and Jellico are villains. Yes. Now, I put K1 as a villain, but Kettlewell is a prominent character. I would almost invert those. Put K1 as the the mm. prominent and Kettlewell as a villain? Mm. All right. I can see, yeah, I can see that. I can see why. One has control of his actions, the other one does not. Mm. Before the very end. And at the end, it's not his fault. All right. Okay, how about we go with the definites first of so the Doctor and the Companions? And yeah. then we get Yeah, we get that. Yeah. Yeah. So, the Doctor, will you go first or will I go first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, I see the Doctor is still keeping his keys in his shoe. Mm-hmm. Interesting that. Um, Smart man. <laughs> so, Tom's Doctor is very different from John's, mm. and yet very much still the Doctor. Like, mm-hmm. You see him, and you can see the carryovers from John, you know, the scientific mindset. You can see the energy and the zaniness and stuff like that from the previous incarnations as well. Mm-hmm. Tom's doctor though is crazy, energetic, boyish. He is a little bit of an emotional imbalance. He gets very upset or angry very quickly. Although yeah. Kempo did warn us that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved him in this. It's such a fantastic introduction. And like, Spoilers, obviously I've seen a lot of Tom's run. Yeah. This is just the perfect introduction to that character. Mm-hmm. His interactions with everybody are brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um I would have loved to have seen a bit more of him with Sarah. I'll get more of mm-hmm. that when we talk about Sarah Jane as a character, but what he had with Sarah was lovely. Mm-hmm. His dynamic with Harry is off to an amazing start. Mm-hmm. And I like how in many ways the way he is with the brigadier while it has certain components of John, it's much more like Troughton's was. Yeah. You know, he's excited to see him. He, you know, he's participating. He's not giving out about the use of military force or whatever. Even like, you know, he calls it when it's not, you know, it's not enough or it's not applicable or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, there's no sort of demeaningness to him that um, John's doctor sometimes had. No. Also, you know, not to completely shit on John's doctor but third doctor take notice Sarah disappears and immediately the fourth doctor gets angry at the people who should have been looking out for her and he is not indifferent and cares for her well-being no. even though she's been swallowed off by herself for pretty much this entire story <laughs> um, but yeah overall I think for Tom this is like a fantastic introduction story and he plays the character just perfectly. He sits into it. Like, you'd swear he'd been playing the character for years. Which, mm-hmm. obviously, find out that Terence basically wrote it as Tom. Yeah. And this is the comparison that people always make that Doc Tom is basically just Tom. Baker. Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it just works so well. How about you? Cool. So, 
the day has finally come. Mm. Harpo Marx is now the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a huge inspiration of specifically Harpo. Now, mm. obviously, there's a small bit of the Groucho walk, but in terms of the, the facial, the eye bulge, some of the mannerisms, the smiles, there's Harpo there. And it's it's great because, you know, you know me and Hart, uh, Marx Brothers. Mm. Um, and I agree with you like that. I love the follow through on the new regenerations. Um, be- in the sense of like he's he's something that we haven't seen before, mm. but at the same time, he is, yeah. because like, you know the the happiness that seen the brigadier and Sarah Jane much like the second doctor, mm. or at the very end when he's having his little sulk and he holds out the the jelly baby, you know, to mm. Sarah Jane. That's a very second doctor thing. I think. Um, some of his like when he distracts Kettlewell by talking about his scientific acumen and all this type of stuff mm. that's very third doctor yeah and i think some of his or even when he's building his little fucking tower of odds and ends, his tower of nothing his tower which of i just nothing. love that it does nothing um and as well like i think his bit of interactions with harry is very first doctor you yeah. know and again there's it's, a bit of the imp in there yeah, like. there's a huge bit of the imp and again it's it's great to see honoring the legacy of those that have come before you while completely adding your own zaniness. Mm. I mean, like climbing up onto the lab table and saying goodnight to the brigadier, turning off the lights while the brig is still just standing there. <laughs> like, uh, I love that moment. Or I, I love his clothing changes as well. It's oh, so funny. That, it's just that, such a funny sequence. Yeah. And he's like, you know, tell me on the way, brigadier. Tell me on the way. You must cultivate a sense of urgency. Uh, after like, holding everyone. This is the clown. And he's just like, Harry mm. and the brigadier is like, no. And he's just like, well, he looks so a... depressed and sad. Well, like, when he's with the Viking, he's like, you know, it's, you, do you think it's a, well, like, people might notice? I think they might. <laughs> <laughs> just like, they play off each other so well. Or like, there was the whole thing that you said, the imbalance, you go, can't, can't. There's no such word as can't. Closing the door, opens it up. Why can't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, I really enjoyed that. Um, I also love the carrying on John's tradition of, you know, taking the piss out of what you used to look like. Because yeah. he's like, you know, the nose is a definite improvement <laughs> as to the ears. <laughs> but see, every time I hear that word, because you said, as for the physiognomy, I always yeah. do it in Tom's voice. You know, like, as, for, as for the physiognomy, oh, <laughs> got to take the rough with the smooth. Um, this is actually a very quotable. <laughs> it really is. Um, it's such a quotable story. But in terms of the doctor, not just Tom, right? In terms of the yeah. doctor, we get the scientist, we get the yeah. detective. Like, I love where he's there, like, with the little diamond mm. eyeglass to look at a bloody dandelion. Or <laughs> when he just blows it into the brigadier's face, it's fucking funny. Or, you know, the whole thing, you know, like, unsinkable sounds like too much impregnable. What's wrong with that? You know, impregnable like, sounds too much like yeah. unsinkable. <laughs> and not, nothing, as the iceberg said to the Titanic. Glub, glub, <laughs> glub. Like, that's, that's fucking dark. Um, <laughs> what makes it, though, is the glub, glub, glub part. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, like, I think my favourite moment of him in this entire thing is when he gets the rope and starts to skip with mother, harry mother Father, I, I feel, I feel sick, sick. <laughs> said the doctor, doctor quick, quick 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 mother mother shall, shall I, I die <laughs> yes my darling <laughs> bye, bye one <laughs> two it's just it's <laughs> fucking <laughs> brilliant <laughs> it is like I would say, like, as good as Patrick and John were in their regeneration stories, mm. I think Tom has just completely blown out, blown them out of the water. Yeah, like, Tom's Doctor 
and Tom himself. It's just you can't help get caught up in it. No. Do you know? Um, and like the fact that like you know he he plays at not paying attention, but he is paying perfect attention. Unlike you know John's doctor who wouldn't be paying attention, you'd have to repeat yourself. No. Um, it's just it's so good. It's such a fantastic performance. It really and is a brilliant introduction. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's a, it, as I said, it gives a taste of good things to come. Mm. So now onto the companions. Yes. Uh, so first we have Sarah Jane. Uh, mm. Sarah, you should not make assumptions based on someone's gender. Mm-hmm. Um, you of all people. Also, did she buy Mike's car? Maybe he gave the same him- car. <laughs> It it looks like the same car. Maybe she was inspired. Or maybe he gave it to her. <laughs> um, I do love that we're still seeing Sarah Jane Smith, the journalist. Mm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. It's very much Sarah doing the investigating and finding out everything, which we've seen from her before. Do you know? Yes. Um, but it's always great for us to remember that Sarah is a journalist. Like, that's mm. like that's her job. Um. I also love how she can still just swan about Eunice whenever she wants. Like, because mm. the brigadier is talking to her. She asks for the pass and he's like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. And he's like, oh, can I see the doctor before I leave? Meaning she hasn't been to see him yet. Mm. So what the fuck was she doing? <laughs> she was off doing her own fucking, like... Just wandering around Eunice on her own. <laughs> but also as well, like that... Now, I know that the time scale doesn't really uh, match up, but mm. like when she goes to Tink Tank, she's very doctor like in her whole thing of just barging into a, a restricted area. <laughs> I, I, love, I love it. It's like, yeah. ooh, what's you know, in here? She will eventually, like, you know, following the, con- you know, the continuity of the show and up into yeah. Sarah Jane, which is she will eventually become one of the top journalists mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I love, but what I love as well is that, like, when. Miss Winters is like, you know, you won't tell anyone what you saw, and I won't tell anyone how you saw it. Mm-hmm. And she immediately goes and tells Unit everything. <laughs> She's like, yeah, so I went to this this closed off area, and then I snuck back in later on, and I hopped over a wall, and there's a funny story about the wall, I'll tell you in a second. I hopped over the wall, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's just like, She's like, I could... that was a stupid threat to make. You're mm. going to tell everyone we have this giant robot. Well, I'll tell them you snuck in here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, the thing with the wall, though, is uh, so Sarah climbs over the wall and she's wearing this. She's wearing an amazing outfit. Mm-hmm. The most awkward boots known to man. Um, and so she slides over the wall. Originally, when she did that, she climbed over the wall, and Christopher Bryan's like, "No, cut, cut, Liz, that was great, but could I see your face and not your arse, please?" <laughs> <laughs> Because she went like legs first, <laughs> just <laughs> stuck her ass. Um, Sarah is separated from the core group a lot in this story, mm. which you know, I guess I think kind of fed into Elizabeth Sladen kind of feeling a little bit separated from Ian and Tom. Mm-hmm. But my God, does she carry her own? Oh, absolutely! In this like, story, like, like it's it's the it's the whole thing of like companion carrying their. When you don't have to be going, what's the doctor doing? Mm. You have a very good character and you also have a very good story. Yeah. And like 
her connection with the brigadier. She can have conversations with him just as herself. Mm-hmm. I love that she she's like, you know, oh brigadier, you're a swinger. <laughs> like, Actually, um, unless it's with Doris, you know, the way she is with Benton, like she's so relaxed with everybody. Mm. It's not like that. You know, she got left behind. She's just doing her own thing. You know, investigating as she will. Um, again, she plays Benton. Poor guy. And we'll talk that more. I think when we're talking about Benton, mm. I was like, you know, do I work for Unit? Mm. No, Miss. Am I under arrest? No, Miss. I was like, then you can't read anything, can you? No. It's like, bye bye. See you later. I actually loved her. In, I loved her interactions with the uh, the greeter from the SRS, like the whole thing, mm. commenting about like her wearing pants and all this type of shit. That's mm. like, okay, you're one of those people. Another favorite outfit. I would just like to say. Um, mm. What I love most though is her connection with the robot. Yeah. Because that's based on pure compassion, and what I love is unlike some King Kong stories. Mm-hmm. Sarah never turns on the robot. Mm-hmm. Her compassion for the robot is there from beginning to end. Mm. Even though she knows that it's doing terrible things, she also knows why. Yeah. And like she never like she begs it to stop, but she's never getting angry at it. And like she's never looking for a way to destroy it. Though obviously in the end they do, but Sarah wasn't involved in that. I think yeah. that's a great way to see it because I think in some King Kong stories, you know, like what's her face, um, Fairy, yeah, gets upset, you know, and you know, gets angry with Kong and stuff. I think that was a reason why. You now going off topic, like why, like I, I love look, I love the thirties version of it because like, it's just a, it's just a cool movie. It's really well done. But I think in terms of an emotional story, Peter Jackson's two thousand and five version mm. is is brilliant because naomi watts like and like, this is like this is the, the, the kind of the fucking my battlefield is that andy circus is an is an award-winning deservedly award-winning actor who doesn't mm-hmm. get the recognition just because he's not actually on screen when he does all these things because mm-hmm. his performance as kong alongside naomi watts you actually like it breaks your heart when kong dies in the 2005 version yeah and you can see um, that it breaks her heart as well. So yeah, yeah um, back to this. Exactly. Yeah, but like, we see a lot of that here in Sarah Jane. And so like, not in all King Kong stories, but in some King Kong stories, like, like King Kong inspired stories, mm-hmm. you have the girl turning mm-hmm. against the quote unquote monster or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. And Sarah never does. No. She never does. Do you know? Um, and it's so sweet. And you sort of imagine her sort of being like, maybe the doctor can fix the imbalance and. You know, it, it's just, it's very, very sweet. It's a very good Sarah Jane performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it is on the short list. We'll see in a couple of stories if it makes it to the end. But I think this is definitely on my short list for Sarah Jane. Oh, okay. How about you? Um, I agree with, like, I actually have most of the same points that you do down here. Uh, mm. Like, in terms of, like, she's, like, while the doctor is reasserting himself or finding mm. himself, she's just basically being the doctor you know just mm. fucking investigating sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong all this type of stuff but i think where the real bread and butter of her performance comes into or the real heart of her performance is her interactions with k1 
Mm. Like it's it is great and it's as you say it's it is King Kong and um oh the I can't remember and Daryl that's the name of the yeah. character that's the name of the character and Daryl it's well it is Grey Kong and Anne um mm. it's just like it, may, it makes you like like really really fond of her and it's why. I think it's the hallmark of a good companion, the sense of like, you know, you try and find the humanity in the misguided villain. I won't say it now. There's a uh, an episode where a villain has an mm. interaction with the companion, but it's not the same because mm. here we have a misguided character that is on the threshold of acting one way or the other, mm. as opposed to one that is guilty of unspeakable fucking crimes mm. trying to stave off death. So... Mm. Here it's very different, and you know, like it's just when, when at the very end when she's so despondent, you you do feel for her, like, and you, you if there had been any other way type thing, huh? Yeah. And like the doctor does try to kind of he does cushion her the blow, but also presents the reality was like that he was very human, he was capable of very of great good, but also great evil. Yeah. So yeah, it's. I think it's like, like if if you're a fan of the revival era of the show or if you're a fan of the Sarah Jane Adventures mm. her being devastated over the loss of a robot dog mm. you can see that that's perfectly in tune with her character yeah. mm. going back to the story yeah absolutely and like again like it's it's the sen- it's the sentimentality or not the sentimentality it's I suppose the byproduct of being an associate of the doctor is that you actually get to see, like, whereas maybe once upon a time, Sarah Jane would have said, like, oh, he's just a mindless machine. Mm. Now she sees the humanity within that machine. Yeah. And she's fighting for it. So, yeah, no, it's a really good Sarah Jane story. And I, I would say, yeah, you're on the money when it comes to a shortlist candidate. Mm. Then we have the Brigadier. What ah, do you think yes. of Alistair this time around? Ah, the Briggs casual racism. You'll love to see it. <laughs> so, to explain that, the 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 Briggs says that the UK was chosen to be the holder of the missile launch codes. And the doctor makes, you know, he says, like, oh, all the other countries are foreigners. And the Briggs goes, well, quite right. And then he, re- he kind of catches himself to realize what he just said. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, you, fu- you fucking love it. I love how he... He doesn't really bat an eye. Like, he's witnessed the regeneration now this time, okay? Mm. He's actually seen the transformation. And he, he doesn't bat an eye. He just yeah. fucking rolls with it. And, like, to the sense of, like, when the when the doctor tries to leave, and, you know, Sarah Jane's like, oh, the brigadier needs your help. He goes, oh, yes, very crucial. Definitely need your hot off of this. And it's like, oh, it's fucking brilliant. Um, and like, But the dynamic between him and the doctor doesn't change. It, it it really doesn't. It's so, so good. But you can really tell as well, and I, I actually really enjoy this part of it, because it's one of my favourite Brigadier moments, is you can always tell a situ- how serious the situation is by how angry he is at that time. Mm. So, like, when Benton asks, like, oh, are you able to get the permission to raid Tink Tank? He kind of snaps at him, but mm. then draws himself back. But my favourite moment mm. is when Winters is... Oh, you just want to fucking punch her. Like, I mean, like, really get the uppercut under the chin and fucking hoof her out of her boots. And he just screams at her, cancel 
Yeah. The, the abort, like, you know, shut down Send the abort sequence. code or whatever, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's shut it down. Like, when he just fucking screams at her. Like, it's so raw and angry. And, like, I ha- like I kind of have to wonder a small bit, right? Is And I had, I, had, I suppose I had the point on Winters. But I, I think maybe I should address it with the Brigadier. Is... Is there a small element of potential sexism to this? Because I've never seen him get this mad when, like, when the master was responsible for something, or he had the mastery. But I think it's by virtue of the fact of how, like, Winter's whole attitude—that she's above everyone and everything—and mm. the fact that she's refusing, like, while, like, in the face of like guns and military might and all this type of shit, she's like, "No, you know, you have no power to stop me." He, he he just fucking lashes verbally lashes out at her, and I, I'm just I, wondering: is it just a situation, or is there a small element in the sense of like it's a fucking woman that's gotten the best of him? I think it isn't. It isn't my hmm. read of that situation because this brings up an important thing about Sarah that we didn't mention. It yeah, is he's there like you? Know, he has her at gunpoint, like you know, shot down, and she's like, "No, you won't shoot me." Which I think is very true. Hmm. I don't think he would have. Because for all she's doing, Alistair is very old-fashioned. He says it himself. I don't think he would have been able to shoot her. I think that's why he loses it. Because he knows he won't shoot her. Hmm. And so the only way to get her to do what he wants is to yell and scream and rage at her. Because he won't take the other option. Do you know? And I I think she... I think she read him right in that. Yeah. Do you know, and we, I think we kind of for, got a little bit of a foreshadow earlier when he says that you know he is old-fashioned. Mm. And then you have Sarah Jane basically saying, well, I fucking will. Yeah, she picks up the gun and she's like, "If he won't do it, but I will. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I think she would have. Oh. Because from her mind, Winter's tortured the robot. Hmm. Do you know? So I think, I, I don't know, I mean, I think Sarah would have done it. Um, but I think that's why the Brigadier loses the rag, is because he can't. He feels powerless to do anything else. I think if it had been Joe in that situation, Joe would have already shot her. Possibly. Yeah. Maybe wounded her, but not like a shot, shoot to kill. Yeah. But yeah, there's just something wrong. And I think it's just by, I think it's by virtue of the fact that Winters constantly has the upper hand in the situation. Like the Brig refuses, the Brig is like, you know, that, he just constantly referred to her as that woman. Yeah, and, I, and I'm just wondering, like, is like I, I, that's the thing that I was asking is like because of that constant that woman, is it just a small element of sexism or is it just the situation? And I again, like you, I think it's a small bit of like it is and it isn't type thing. Yeah, I think a lot of the whole like that woman fucking thing is the fact that like she presents herself in this complete elitist fashion. Oh, partially yeah. because she is a woman. Hmm. do you know so yeah. I mean, clearly the brigadier you know we've said before that Alistair can be a little bit sexist mm-hmm. in the most well-intentioned of ways yes but he clearly has great respect for Sarah Jane he had great mm-hmm. respect for Liz he mm-hmm. had Joe was a little bit different but he did respect her in, in his own way yeah. Um. but like this woman just has him on the back foot constantly mm. and I, I do think he's sort of feeling like he can't go after her the same way he would if she were a man. Yeah. Do you know? 
but you know I, I do agree with you when he fucking yells at her like send them more codes or whatever yeah. the fuck he said it's we've never seen him like that before yeah and it's it's such a it's such a raw moment it's great mm. Because it kind of reminds me of Nicholas Courtney's performance as Brett in yeah. Alex Master Plan. And like, which, like, had we not known that he was going to be the brigadier later on, mm. like, we said so we loved his performance in it just because of his performance, not because we knew it was Nick Courtney, future star of the show. Yeah, no, Brett, justice for Brett. Um, justice for Brett. Brett was amazing. And I think, you know. Something I noticed during John's run on the show, and this isn't John's fault, but during no, Terence's no. um, script editing, script editing is the brigadier that we see in John's run, and even a little bit the brigadier we see here is not the same brigadier we saw before. This brigadier is held back in many ways by restriction. Hmm. But also, he's often played as the funny man. Yeah. You know, like, that he's a bit simple. Mm. That he's, you know, just blows shit up. And, and that's all he does. And that's all he knows how to do. And, you know, ESP stands for extrasensory perception, you know. Um, or the line in this one, like, you know, just once I wish we met an alien menace that wasn't impervious to bullets. Yeah, but, like, that line is actually closer to the to the brigadier of... The invasion or to Colonel mm. Lethbridge Stroke of the Invasion. Um, Robert Fair. Robert Fair, yeah, like, because I think that's what we get here at the end is like, you know, he is still that man. I mean, yeah, he has his funny moments with the doctor where he doesn't understand what the doctor's talking about and whatever, but I like that we still get the fact that, like, he is still the brigadier, like, do yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, other things I loved about him in the story is like, like I said, he takes things as they come. Like his whole thing to like, I need, I need him. Oh yeah, no, I do. Yeah. Oh yeah, the thing. Yeah. Cool. And he's like, let's start with the fucking horse. <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Cool. Let's go. Sarah, what am I saying next? Oh, that's, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, that thing's right. Um, I also love how he just tells everything to Sarah because he's so used to having the doctor to tell things to. Mm-hmm. I was like, I shouldn't be telling you this. Then why are you? I suppose I just wanted someone to tell. I was <laughs> like, oh. Um, also, like, he tried. Like, this is kind of like the bit of, like, the brigadier, the buffoon type thing. Mm-hmm. He saw an advanced weapon and he just had to give it a go. Yeah. He had to try it. Best efforts forward. Didn't really go his way. Um... I think, though, of a lot of his recent performances, I think this is actually one of his most complete. Mm. Because we have the brig is going to break aspects of the story. Mm. We have his frustration. We have his eye rolls at Fenton. Um, We also have his compassion. And then we have that sort of rage at the end. I think it's a very good performance um, from Nick and a very good outing for the brig. Mm. No, I, I agree. I agree. It's a shame that he is no longer going to be recurring. Yeah. And then we have his sturdy right hand. Yep. Warrant S- Officer Benton. So we actually get, we Benton gets a treat, but we also get a treat because he gets mm. a promotion. And we also get to see Science Benton. Yeah. 
I love science Benton because he's there like he's talking about the living virus and he's like what I just taught and you can see him kind of trailing off because he just doubts himself but like the doctor yeah. just goes up and shakes his head and he's like Mr. Benton thank you so much for her. and uh, it, it, it's great and then like, the big giant grin on his face <laughs> like I I, I, I love Benton. Um, th- this was a story that completely exemplifies it. Also, you can really kind of tell that it's been a while since Mick and John appeared on the show because their hair has gotten very 70s as opposed to like the standard military cuts that they had <laughs> in the previous stories. It's gotten a bit fuller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, ah, cool. Unit is going top casual though. I like it. Um, but you can tell like that he's like technically speaking his promotion is a technicality because you said that uh, under normal regulations the brig should have a major and a captain reporting to him Mm. but the unit budget restricts it so they promoted him to he actually gets a double promotion because warrant officer class one Mm. is this is the senior one there's a warrant officer warrant officer uh c2 is like the what it would be the first promotion and then it goes to warrant officer class one i actually looked this up if mm. you were to say warrant officer first class that's incorrect mm. so it's warrant officer class one so is the is the top warrant officer rank i believe for the for the army and so yeah like i actually think that's pretty cool you know it's it's a nice one i did think that because like like he says that the brig is meant to have two like two, two commissioned officers, officers reporting to him. a captain and major and yeah like it's a technicality, but Benton is taking the place of Benton, who's a a non commissioned officer, mm-hmm. right? Is taking the place of two commissioned officers mm. as the direct report to the brigadier. I get the feeling that the brig is now going to hold him to a higher standard, but mm. is still incredibly proud of him. Like he's oh, still I'd his, say so. He's still his boy, Benton. Like I have a funny feeling that, like you know you know the army and unit were sort of back and forth being like oh he needs to have a major and a captain like that's you know that's the rules like well we don't have the money and he's like just fucking promote benton yeah benton will do everything i need him to do there's no point (laughs) in bringing anyone else the last chap you gave me went off the fucking deep end altogether Mm. so (laughs) just promote him for fuck's sake How about you? That that that's really I like you know like Benton is great here like because like he seems so. I know he makes a joke of it as well like when he's like saves Sarah Jane, mm. or when he like you when he thinks he saves the Doctor and Sarah Jane, he's like Jesus, the U.S. Cavalry never got this type of treatment. You can tell he's a small bit put out because like, it's a case of like how was I to know that you weren't in danger? And she does. Well, she told him. Yeah, like she no, she, apo- <laughs> she apologizes. <laughs> but, yeah, she told him not to shoot. Yeah, um, and he opened fire. Yeah. Um, the the one thing, so like everything we've talked about, completely accurate. The one mm. thing that I love, and I mentioned this with Sarah Jane, is that she plays him again. Mm. Do you know? Um, <laughs> you would think after the last time, they would have had a discussion on, look, you know, this civilian is involved now in unit operations due to her connection with the doctor. If she's going to go, uh, off piste. Shall we say? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Beethoven the Berry. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do we deal with that? Yeah. This is the second time she's done this to you. Mm. 
<laughs> you uh, think you would have found a solution the first time? Just, I don't know, <laughs> lock the door. <laughs> yeah, or say, you know, you know Miss Smith, like, while you may not be in the employ of units, you are currently working on a unit operation, so mm. no, you mm. cannot go. <laughs> was, um, I'm not the one stop you from leaving. The locked door is the one stopping you from. <laughs> do you know, like the manager's like, yo, that's what I was like, yo, um, the brigadier's on the phone. The doctor's resting. It's like, don't bother. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, Brent, no, Benton, go bother them. Yeah. <laughs> like, she is not respecting your authority. <laughs> After promoting you on your lovely new badge. Yeah. Oh God. And we all know how bent, how proud Benton is of his promotions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So now I suppose we come on to the new addition to the TARDIS family. Oh, Harry, Harry. Su- Harry Sullivan. I think Sarah said it herself. He's a little old-fashioned. Just, um, just a that tad. That is part of his charm. Mm. Um, I think this is a great introduction for his character because he already feels like part of the team. Yeah. Like, we've had four episodes, and even though he's new to the situation, and obviously we'll see how it plays out next week, he does feel like he's already part of the group. Mm. He works great with the Doctor. His bit with Sarah were just so funny, because it's just, like, these two... Like, <laughs> like people ship Sarah and Harry, right? And I, I understand why in some respects, but it's like... These like, like these two good friends or these two siblings, or it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this would be great for you. This would be great for you. You fucked it up, you moron. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it, the way he works with them works really, really well, mm. and he has the respect of the brigadier. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So like, in terms of how he fits into the current environment, I think he's a natural fit. Now, I mean, one of the things that's commonly known is that. Ian was hired before Tom mm-hmm. because they didn't know what the doctor would be like and they yeah. were going to need an a heavy hitter, mm-hmm. you know, an action man. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the mm. coming stories like between the two of them. Uh, but like for me, like Harry's a good egg. Mm. Do you know? Yeah, I, I can definitely see why you sometimes think of me as Harry. <laughs> 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 or refer to me as Harry. Um, like, no, I will say it. We want to get a small taste of what is to come. Because, again, yes. f- future knowledge. Because like, I think going back and watching this, the appreciation of the character is very much based on the fact of what we know was what to come. Mm. But from a starting out point of view, you know that he's going to make for a very interesting person to go traveling with because of his, like, you know... Like, you know, that old battered police box, I very much doubt it. And the doctor takes the half-eaten jelly baby off him. <laughs> <laughs> also, because unlike the doctor and Sarah, he didn't just pop the jelly baby. So he bit the fucking head off. <laughs> yeah. He's a monster. <laughs> the fucking... No, I'm not going to say that because that's very poor taste. <laughs> um, but I love... I, like, I love... He's so old-fashioned that when he, the doctor tricks him into the TARDIS, they kind of close the door behind him and you just hear like him kind of going, well, I say this is new. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> wetting herself. Because yeah. like, this is the thing. His civvies is a fucking... It's like a club... A dinner jacket. A club dinner yeah. jacket. A fucking cravat. <laughs> and like, it's... it's he's like every some, bit the sailor, like. Yeah, he's off to the yacht club. 
for yeah. like you know his soda and lime and or whatever the <laughs> fuck you want to call it um i don't know where i said lime like that but you know as you say like he he just fits in well he he's mm. like he has good rapport with tom he's mm. a really good rapport with liz and i can't wait to see the following the next couple of batch of stories where we get to see them really focus on harry as a companion yeah yeah no i'm really looking forward to it i think it's a really fresh introduction because i think the other thing as well like if you compare like harry's the first male companion we've had since jamie like john had no male companions no Except that the unit sort of collective is a slightly well, different... Yeah, if you, if you take the unit boys out of things, which yeah, for um, the most part you kind of do, yeah. he has he has no travelling companion that is male. Yeah. So, whereas like with Jamie, and then with Ben, and with Stephen, like, the Doctor was sort of bringing them under his wing. You mm. know, helping them grow, and whatever. You're not getting that sense with Harry, like... Harry is his own man already. Like Harry, you know I, mean? I think Harry kind of falls into the same category as Ian in the sense that yeah. he is he's already a rounded adult. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays because we haven't seen that since Ian, mm-hmm. which now but, is a very long time ago. Also, a very interesting uh, point to take into consideration. Okay, like mm-hmm. Ben, he's a navy man. He is, and. So Harry, okay, this is actually going to be very interesting, okay? Because Harry is a doctor; he's a medical doctor. Yes. So we we always said that one of our favorite Ben moments was his mm. remorse at killing the Cyberman in Ten Planet. Yeah. Which we thought was great as a military character showing that remorse is mm. brilliant. I'm looking forward to seeing what type of scenarios where Harry's Hippocratic oath will mm. come into question, if even if it if if it does. You yeah. know, it'll be interesting. There's a line coming up next week that I just love. I'm just going mm. to preview it now, which is where the doctor's like, you know, I'm you know, a doctor, but not like a medical doctor. And Harry's mm. only qualified to work on sailors. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines that comes up next week. Um, uh. But yeah, no, I think I think it'll be an interesting thing for Harry because also like Ben was younger than Harry. Mm. Ben was a sailor. Yeah. Harry's, Harry's a lieutenant. He's a commissioner. Or lieutenant officer. or whatever whatever yeah. way you pronounce it. Mm. Um yeah, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. I'm looking forward to Harry's run. I hadn't realised how much I kind of because obviously it's been so long since I watched mm. um this group. Mm. I hadn't realised how much I missed Harry. Mm. <laughs> Although I suppose I've my own Harry, so maybe that's yeah. maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. You have your own one. <laughs> You can't miss what um, is always there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we have a prominent character. So how do we want to do this? So we have prominent characters, and you said Kettlewell. I right. said the robot. Okay. Now, I can I I can see why K1 would... No, I just put him in there for the villain's sake because he's the eponymous. I believe that's the correct mm. use of the word. Yes. Fucking character of the thing. And... I think it's rare that we've seen the the title monster or the title whatever mm. be in a prominent character section. Mm. Um, that's why I put him into the villain. However, I have lots of arguments as to why he should be in the prominent characters mm. section. 
so I'm more than happy to put him in there. However, I also feel that Kettlewell is a prominent character as opposed to an out-and-out villain. I think he's on the grey line between the two, mm. but I don't see him as an out-and-out villain like the other two. Okay, well, why would you K1 first, then yeah. Kettlewell, and mm. then we'll jump into villains proper with the other two? Cool, perfect. Uh, so, a King, a King Kong story mm. with an Oedipus complex meet, uh, an Oedipus complex suffering robot. Very... I'll tell you one thing. The use of the term Oedipus complex in this mm. story is a bit of a fucking stretch. As, you know, I'll admit it's a small bit of a stretch, but I I can see where they came from it. You know, or came Yeah, but it. it's also looking at an Oedipus complex from a complete like base reading of it. Yeah. Um, um I as I said, also like there's the element of the Frankenstein thing, which is my mm. argument for uh he is the prominent character. Because mm. fr- I I haven't read Frankenstein now for a long time, but the mm. first time I read it was about ten years ago, eleven years ago, mm. when we moved when we moved into the Headlands, mm. and I immediately fell in love with it because right. it, it like for any of you that maybe that haven't read it, it's a fantastic story in the sense of who is the real monster, almost like Obi Wan mm. Kenobi's great statement from Star Wars: "Who's the real monster." the monster or the monster that creates it mm. because k1 is not inherently evil nope. right but he is treated as an evil entity by both winters and jellico because he they treat him as a tool to suit their own ends mm. ends and but because he's in that scenario he's treated as an adversary by both by the the unit crew and mm. the doctor to an extent so is it any wonder that because of that treatment and his own internal conflicts, that he would take the evil action. If you're going to treat me like a monster, I might as well become the monster that you're making me out to be. Yeah, and like, it's an interesting thing because King Kong with the ability to talk. Yeah. Do you know, he can describe what he is feeling. Mm. Do you know, and it's this interesting dilemma of he his initial programming, his core directive is to not hurt people. Yeah. But then he has the people who basically gave him life telling him to hurt people. Hmm. And in the end, it resulted in him killing the one person he thought that he could trust, which is Kettlewell. Hmm. Kettlewell has to be right on what Kettlewell says, because Kettlewell is the one who created him. Hmm. And so I think him going off the deep end at the end, I think it's not so much an Oedipus complex as the doctor described it. Though, you know, I, I get why Sarah Jane fits in with that. Mm-hmm. You know, Sarah Jane never lied to him. She never mm-hmm. used him. She was never anything but honest and yeah. compassionate with him. And his thing is just like, you know, she's the exception. Yeah. They lie. They're polluting the planet. And like he just remembers what Kettlewell says. Mm-hmm. And he feels so hung up on what he did to Kettlewell that he's like, I'll continue what he was doing. Like That's, that's why he goes to do it. Because that's what Kettlewell wanted and like obviously there's that inner trauma when he ends up killing Kettlewell by by accident because it's in a fit of emotional distress yeah so but I think and as you say like with we've seen plenty of stories where like the one good person restores the fate in humanity as a whole Hmm. whereas here is a machine which is what he is treated as at times and what he is he he's obviously calculated the odds of like how can one person be a turning point for a world as a whole that's essentially trying to fucking kill itself. 
So, yeah. I think if you look at it from the sort of logical, like robot perspective as well, all of these countries on this planet have nuclear warheads that could destroy each mm. other. Yeah. Like they have the power to destroy each other. Like what the hell are they doing? Mm. Like he's meant to service humanity, but who's humanity servicing? I think the reason why I I like I really like him as a prominent character, as yeah. the prominent character, mm. is because until that very end, when he goes off the deep end, he has no agency or very little agency. Mm. They're tweaking, like particularly like Jellico and Miss Winters, are tweaking his mind and tweaking his programming, yeah, in ways that Catlowell outlined for them. Mm. but like he's not doing what he was originally designed to do mm. do you know and it's not his fault do you know he can't not do what they say and like he also ra- he, sorry i just hit my microphone he also raises a question there and like myself and paul from half measures podcast we kind of had a joking type thing where um we 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 sometimes raise some very serious existential points like over the whole you know uh, do Cybermen have souls? Are mm. clones just essentially big dumb meat sacks? Stuff like that. Mm. But stories like this, and it's not just Doctor Who. If you take into mm. account Skynet and Terminator, if yeah. you take into account, um, I, I'm pretty sure there's an example in Star Trek. I probably just can't think of it off the top of my head. But it's this whole thing of a computer realizing that humanity is its own biggest threat. Yeah, and it's like the machine isn't wrong mm. in the sense of like and I've said this times as well like that we're a society that has technology capable of bringing us to the fucking moon mm. yet in this day and age we're still getting into varying degrees of dispute over borders or resources yep. and you kind of have to ask the question like what's the what is worth <laughs> saving type thing you know mm. and again but it's characters like sarah jane and in real life it's characters like people from M- you know medicine sans frontier or mm. charitable organizations that are doing it. they're the ones that make it all worth it and unfortunately computers only take from what we see in these examples they're very binary in their thing where it's like there's no shade of gray they can't calculate yeah. it so and i watched um watched a very good interview uh, today actually with between mm. DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Walter Koenig mm. and Harlan Ellison the guy who wrote or whose script was there for Sitting on the Edge of Yeah, he to, did the original to, yeah, script the original script. and it was actually very interesting to see like that Harlan Ellison has such a der- like derisory look on Star Trek because he, he said it was essentially just a glorified cop show in space but James Doohan like combated him saying like no it raises a lot of like very you know contemporary issues and whole and he was saying it's not just that there's a lot of and like the guys on uh, mission log they raise mm. these points what are the messages mm. so like and that's the thing it's like you know it's a i think i've just kind of rambled a small bit but my whole point here is like that this story brings into the question what is the point in saving humanity like why is the machine the evil one here and it's characters like sarah jane that remind you like that no these are the things we're saving it for and he's like, like K one recognizes that she is worth saving. Yeah, she he just doesn't think there's anyone else like her. I know, and that that's the unfortunate thing because his entire worldview is he's been manipulated by Winters and Jellicoe. Mm. 
and his entire thing is this fucking bunker mm. and the fact that he's being assaulted by troops he does not see he does not have a one-on-one conversation with the doctor of mm. his own agency because he's been instructed yeah. to kill him uh he doesn't see he doesn't talk to like parry sullivan mm. like he does there's not none of this type of stuff you know and it's a shame because this is a yeah it's a king kong story it's a king kong slash frankenstein i think the oedipus complex is just thrown in for to explain his connection yeah, to sarah yeah. like oh kill your father and yeah marry your mother the buzzword type scenario like yeah um yeah. what i do love though is okay the robot looks amazing and silly in equal measures yes yes it is Fair juice to Michael Kugarf, like he he tried so far and so hard. Mm. Um, but like the reason Jellico uses the K one robot as a shield mm. is so that Michael didn't fall over. Yeah, <laughs> you can kind of tell he's he was needed up. to keep him standing upright. Mm. Um, so it's not the best robot in science fiction in terms of design. No. However, it's charming in its own way, and you do actually feel sorry for him. I think so much of that is the voice. Mm. The voice is amazing. The emotion present, even though they kind of roboticize the voice a bit, mm. like they obviously put a filter on it, there's still the compassion there. And mm. like you can tell that like it does genuinely care for Sarah. Mm. And I don't think it's a romantic-y type thing. Like, um, Peter no, Jackson I don't. King I, Kong I, kind I, of lend heavily <laughs> sort of like does Kong have romantic feelings for her or whatever. Um, it's probably, it's, there probably is more of a mother, a maternal type of affection there than a yeah, romantic it's, affection. It's very genuine. Hmm. Um, and you're gutted that, like, you know, is it the one thing about Tom Baker's doctor that, like, I find a bit sad is that he's so, haha, I did it. Hmm. I was like, it would have been great if you could have restored his original programming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but like it's kind of like John and the Sea Devils, you know. Mm. Like you yeah. have the capability of doing the right thing, but unfortunately, you kind of take the vi- you take joy in the victory when it sh- when it shouldn't be there. Yeah, at least you know, uh, Doc Tom does show his compassion and at his, the end, and he commiserates with Sarah over us at the end, yeah. which is great. But behind the robot is the man. Mm-hmm. So. In my viewing, all right, the reason why I put Kettlewell into a prominent character is because Kettlewell, to me, represents the character that is people who have come into roadblock after roadblock, after closed door, after brick wall, after roadblock, after everything, in terms of trying to find, like, the betterment for humanity, the betterment for society. Like, he has constantly preached... From what we understand, the clean energy sources, renewable mm. energy. No, it's all fringe, but he keeps getting doors shut in his face, and it's still going on in real life. Like mm. it's still it's still happening. So have you seen uh, the cost of petrol? Yep, absolutely. And it's or even when you watch like people trying to like you know make these what they think they sound really smart when they're trying to debunk climate change, and it's mm. like if you have a theory, okay, but like the theory like you you sound like an idiot when you're trying to you're making these really bad analogies you know but um it's not even like in terms of science like it's people that have he's an allegory for every fucking group that has repeatedly been had been downtrodden 
or had door yeah. slammed in their face and along comes someone that says here they're all the problems for you they're all the cause for your problems here's the solution to that problem mm. it's like radicalization like be it what is like a terrorist group a hate group whatever it is but so he's a representative of that but he's also one of those characters that see the the wrong eventually see the wrong in what they're doing and try to get out from it and unfortunately here he he pays the price for having got into it mm. but he at least tries to make amends he tries to stop the countdown he tries to go back on he he tries to shut the pandora's box that he's opened yeah and that's why i put him as a prominent character because i think he's radicalized by those around him as opposed to being of that persuasion himself yeah and i get that i think why i had him more towards villain than simply prominent character is the implication that he knew the entire time what they were doing mm. he knew the plan he was in on everything everything we saw of him before he stood on that stage mm. is a was charade. a carefully orchestrated lie mm. you can totally imagine that as soon as Sarah left Think Tank, Jellico rang Kettlewell mm. and told him, she's seen the robot. If she comes near you, just play dumb or whatever. And so he comes across like at, in the moment where he you know, reveals himself as a sneaky, conniving little shithead. Mm. Do you know? And yes, I completely feel for him in terms of, you know, like you said, like he he's that person who's been shouting from the rooftops that, you know, we are past the point of no return. Mm. Or in the case of the seventies, you're nearing the point of no return. Mm. Um, and nobody is listening to him. Do you know, and he's looking at these alternative energy sources or whatever. However, man, are you fucking blind? Have you met these people? Mm. What did you think they were going to do? She's basically trying to become the sort of fascist leader, mm. like female fucking Hitler, and you go along with it. Like it's one of these things where, yeah, he's taken into it, and yeah, he, you know, you can kind of see how they maybe persuaded him or whatever. But at the end of the day, he's not a young idealist mm. that got pulled in the wrong direction. He's a grown ass fucking man. Mm. Do you know, who's incredibly intelligent, do you know, and who is deciding to cheat the system instead of trying to make the system work, instead of trying to show people how the world can be better, mm. he joins up with them to threaten the world, mm. to kill people and threaten people with nuclear fallout. As a way of getting what he wants. Hmm. And yes. He does redeem himself somewhat at the end. But to be honest. What did he think they were going to do? Miss Winters is not one to bluff. Like. You can't be surprised. That these people were going to go through with their plan. You've known them fucking long enough. Do you know. And that's why I sort of am like. He's prominent character into villain. Because he knew exactly what was going on. Hmm. And the only, it's only at the final hour 
do you know, he sets the countdown. And it's only at the final hour that he realises, oh shit, she's not going to stop it. Like, don't, have you spoken to her for five minutes? Like, <laughs> Well, like, but see, that that's why I kind of also made the analogy towards supremacist groups, because mm. you have, no, a lot of those groups are, their members are recruited young because they're yeah. unshaped by the world. Mm. But I watched um, an interview with a guy you know he's basically he's a he's a black guy in america mm. who as a, he's a musician but mm. as of late his main notoriety has been getting met people out of the clan because mm. they've they, they've never had a, the majority of them have never actually had a one-to-one interaction with a black person yeah and once they get to know him a small bit and like he is not shy about this thing he goes into redneck bars he goes into all this type of stuff he goes to events mm. knowing that there's a target on his back but he goes in there with the sole purpose of just trying to get people out of that life. Mm. And I suppose like that's what I was kind of saying in the terms of the radicalization with the redemption is the, the one scene that we see of Kettlewell that isn't through the eyes of the protagonists is mm. when K1 comes to the house in a state of distress. Yeah. And we don't really, now granted we don't really see what happens between the two of them, but you would think that Kettlewell starts to get a small bit of concern over K1's emotional state. But it isn't until you get an outside perspective of like of this group, and then you see as well how batshit. Because again, sometimes it's you get caught up in the hysteria of something, and it isn't until you actually see plans being put into place that you're kind of like maybe this isn't such a good idea. Now, again, I'm completely agreeing with you in the sense of he was with them up until such a time, hmm. but then when stuff actually does kind of start to become a bit too real, maybe like he's one of those people that the threat is what we're going for not the actual action but i would agree that probably prominent character straddling the line into villain is a good position for him my thing of it is he felt threatening the world with nuclear fallout was an appropriate course of action oh yeah like and that's where the villainy component comes into it that that bit he was fine with yeah that's the bit that gets me i'm like hmm yeah, no. I will say though, mm. not many people will call the brig young men. No, no, <laughs> not not at all. I do love his like little bit of banter with the doctor over um like the solar battery, and he was like, mm. you could tell like he was really getting into because you know ever since the days of Copernicus, and he's like, uh, professor, why don't you tell us about this robot? <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's the thing. Like, maybe he needed to find different audiences for his ideas. That's it. Yeah, do you know. Um, but instead he joined the lunatic fringe. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about the lunatic fringe? I think we should. So the lunatic fringe are Winters and Jellico. So mm. Jellico first, then Winters. I say. Yeah. So do you remember back in Green Dash, mm. there was the character. Unfortunately, he didn't stick around for a long time because the actor got uh, sick. sick. Yeah. Um, but. I remember at the time saying that that character had fooled me because mm. I thought he was going to be the right-hand man to the villain and he mm. ended up actually being a a potential mm. companion. Mm. Here, kind of the same time. It's kind of the same thing because at times I thought he was going to be a more me- moderate member of Winter's group. You know, mm. it was a very risky thing, you know, saying that he was going to kill her or like, are you sure you want to do this? But, you know, there was a lot of buts coming up. Mm. But then as the story went down, I was like, no, no, he's completely on her side. Completely. Oh, yeah. Like, he's kind of like 
the straight man of the two of them. Yeah. He's more, you know, he's presented as more level-headed. He still wants the exact same thing she does. And the only times he questions her methods mm-hmm. is when it risks the overall plan. Yes. Killing Sarah Jane would have brought more attention. That's the only thing that he was concerned with. Mm. I think it's when her arrogance starts to show is when he starts to get a small bit wary. Yeah. Because like what, like, like, what victory are we going for here? Your personal victory or our goal? Yeah. But like, he's fully on board with the plan. Oh. 110%. Hugely, hugely. Like, there's no sort of misguidedness. There's no sort of, he didn't realize what he was doing. He knows exactly the plan. And, you know, oh yeah, we can live here for as long as we need to. Set them falling. I don't fucking give a shit. Um, which, you know, again, you kind of have to wonder, like, how Kettlewell didn't realise the two of them were completely batshit. Fair enough. Also, he is capable of teleportation. Do you know that? I'm trying to think when did he teleport. Because after they escape from the meeting, yeah, Benton goes back inside, mm. and the doctor is talking to the brigadier, and Benton hands the radio with Harry on it. And then Jellicoe knocks out Harry. But we don't know how long it's been since they drove off. Can't be that long. <laughs> well, yeah, but you don't know how far away King Tank was from the meeting hall. <laughs> True. Just around the corner. They can't see us. <laughs> no, we don't know how far away it was. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think Jellicoe is... I think he's an interesting character. Because the way he's initially presented is he's the assistant. Mm. And you kind of think that maybe he'll turn against Winters because he's sick of her being a fucking self-entitled bitch. But no, he's just 100% on the crazy train. He definitely reminds me of the, the henchman character. I cannot remember his name now, but from the Sarah Jane Smith series. Um, mm. Whatever his name was, I, I can't fucking remember it. But he's yeah. definitely that character. Yeah, and of course then, I don't want to spoil too much of the Sarah Jane Smith series for people who haven't listened to it, but um, his legacy lives on, shall we say. Mm. Yeah. And then we have Miss Batchett herself. Absolutely. No, I have a question for you. Mm. Do you think she knows how to use a microphone? I think she knows how to use one, but I think it's beneath her. Yeah, because she's in a, she's in a meeting hall. No, not overly huge. But rather than using the microphone on the table, she shouts at the crowd. Yeah, well, that, that's part of her, part of her gearing up. Like, hmm. do you know, the microphone would have not allowed her to be as boisterous. Do you know, she needs to be able to walk around to be able to do the fucking hands in the air shite. Uh, to steal a quote, uh, a quotation from uh, the Avengers. Uh, specifically in relation to Loki you can smell the crazy coming off her oh yeah like she is as crazy as a bag of cats mm. like you know? she's like there's this craziness or this insanity and elitism you can see coming off her a mile away yeah like I mean she's a little bit much I'll be honest but in the best evil villain sort of way mm. like you know her plan is bonkers mm. right it is bonkers i'm going yeah. to destroy the entire planet using nuclear weapons and be queen of the fucking wreckage mm. and you're because so, like 
up until that, she's been relatively measured for most of the story until she speaks at that meeting. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, no, she's completely fucking tapped. Mm. Because up until then, you're like, oh, she's like this very cool, professional woman. And then you're like, no, no, she's batshit. She's completely batshit. Yeah. Oh, she's tapped. You can completely get why Big Finish picked this character to bring back in the series. Mm. Because she is so... She's such an interesting character. Because she knows what she wants, she goes after it, and she's always two steps ahead. Mm. And that that's her thing. That's her MO. Like, she's always two steps ahead of you. Oh, yeah. And, like, that, and that's the thing. Like the guys are... The doctor and the others, they're always on the back foot. They're always yeah. chasing her. Yeah. Um, and you can tell how flustered she gets when the doctor mm. and the brig go to visit Think Tank. Because the doctor isn't kowtowing to her the way people usually do. Her presence usually intimidates people. It puts them off. We mm. see it with Sarah. Like, her presence made Sarah uncomfortable. And, like, Sarah was kind of pussyfooting around a bit more than she would normally do until she ran off into a room that clearly said no admittance. Um, yeah. But the doctor's just ploughing on ahead. Just a fuck it, like, go whatever. You can tell that she's like, this is a new variable. Mm. But as soon as she's figured him out, it doesn't matter. She's just ploughing on ahead. Like, she was off her game for about ten minutes. Mm. And then it's back to the plan again. So, yeah. I also love her little jab at Sarah where it's like, you know, you're you're one of those women who gives pet names to motor cars, aren't you? Only because it comes back in yeah. her signal maneuver in a fantastic way, and I love it. Oh, uh, yeah, fucking batch. She's a Bond villain. She's a she is a big time Bond villain. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And given the James Bond call outs in this story, I think that's an appropriate mm. comparison to make. I like again, like I don't think there's enough Doctor versus her in it. Which which is a which is not a bad thing. No. I think that's, and we'll get we'll get to this in the overall, I'm sure. Mm. Uh-huh. But it's an interesting thing that a lot of the key players don't mm. really interact with the Doctor that much. Like Sarah Jane doesn't interact with him that much. Mm. Jellicoe and him, I think, don't even have a conversation. No. Winters doesn't interact with him all that much. And yet, it's it. All the characters work really well. They do. They really do. Yeah, it really speaks to the strength of the companions and the strength of the villains. That like the story can happen hmm. even with the Doctor off with one group the entire time. Hmm. So. We're at the overall for the first story of the new Doctor. So, my, conf- I was gonna say, con- I was gonna say compadre. Then I came in for confrendo. That makes no sense. <laughs> so, Trish, <laughs> <laughs> yes, buddy. What are your thoughts on Robot? I just love it. It's it's so good. It is such a good story. It's well paced, it's emotional, it's funny, it has action, it has very 
very like poignant, heart wrenching moments, mm. mainly focused around Sarah. Um, it's a fantastic introduction of Harry. Mm. Like I said, I've forgotten how much I missed Harry. Um, and for the fourth Doctor, I mean, for the post regeneration story, this is fantastic straight out of the gate. I think Spearhead was also really good, but I think Spearhead was a bit too long. And like there was a lot of time because the doctor was recovering for so long mm. and but whereas with this we have you know what three scenes that the doctor isn't in. So the first scene where he's taken off, the scene mm. with the um break in the scene yeah. with the brigadier explained the break into Sarah, and then the doctor's in. So three scenes, and then we're in straight away with the the way he plays off Harry and everything else. It's just it's fantastic. Mm. Actually, with with the, the the first two break-ins, I didn't describe them because I actually didn't know how to subscribe them uh, describe them because I wanted mm. to leave an air of mystery. You know, because granted, it's called robot, but we don't know why it's called robot. So if I say two minutes in, ah, the robot is the teeth. It's like, oh well, this is invasion of the dinosaurs all over again. <laughs> um, but what I love is that, like, even though they spend such a great amount of time building Harry and the Doctor and building Harry and the Doctor together, hmm. we still have plenty of time for Sarah Jane, plenty of time for the Brig, plenty of time for Benton. I mean, yeah, the special effects are rubbish, right? Hmm. There is, you know. The CSO for the robot didn't work very well when it was really big because of the color reflecting off of the silver, which meant the CSO kind of didn't always match. And half the time, the, the robot's leg disappeared. The tank and Dolly Sarah is weird because her legs just sort of dangle, which is really bizarre. And apparently, the prop guys were not were not kind to Doll Sarah. Uh, so harking back to some of the uh, <laughs> the way that they were with um, Zoe um, mm. and Victoria. Um, but the story and the characters are phenomenal. I think our supporting cast was great. Um, particularly Hilda Winters is just a fantastic antagonist. She's mm. so good. Like, I can't give it anything other than the five. It was absolutely amazing. How about you? So, I agree with you that it's a great introductory story. So, it's another enjoyable regeneration story. Mm. It's just a great story in and of itself. Uh, really good performances all around. Um, I didn't. I, I meant to say it during the K1 thing, Like I did enjoy mm. the performance. A bit overly dramatic at times, I felt. But then again, like, it's... <sighs> it, it, it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of the performance. Mm. I'll put you that way, right? Um, really good villain. Like the, as I said, the one you want to just get right in underneath the chin and just fucking hoof out of the boots. Um, great performance by Sarah Jane. Like, mm. she was the one that carried this story. As good as yeah. Tom was, she's the one that carries it because she's the emotional heft. Yeah. Kind of like Joe in Curse of Peladon, I think. She's mm. the emotional side of things. Now, I do have two quibbles with it though right okay as as cool as it is that winters returns down the line mm. i think it's a bit of a weak ending that they just escaped mm. also 
I wish K1 or someone would have explained why he had to restart the launch sequence again from five minutes. I My read on that mm. was when the doctor convinced the machine to stop, even though on the screen it shows two seconds, that he basically stopped the countdown. And to do mm. the countdown again, the default is five minutes in case you change your mind. Yeah. Okay. Fair it, it, the, the whole point of the countdown is to allow for fail safes if you need to. So I assumed that was the case. Kettlewell paused it mm. on its current cycle, whereas the doctor mm. stopped it, so I had mm. to start a fresh cycle. That was my that was my read on that. Uh, yeah, no, okay, that that's fair enough. But I I still think it's a small bit of a weak ending that Winters and Jellicoe just from out under military fucking custody they somehow mm. managed to just fucking abscond. Because Benton doesn't even say, like, oh, they killed the driver of the Jeep, or they somehow managed to disarm their guards or anything. It's just like, no, they managed to fucking get away. It's like, it's a bit weak. (laughs) Yeah, but the unit soldiers were shooting at them from five feet away and still missed. (laughs) Several uh, times. It's like the, was it, the guards of Minas Tirith, you know, uh, uh, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, but because of that, I'm giving it a 4.75. Okay. Which I think I think is the highest I've given a new Doctor story, because and like, I was just thinking back like there's always I'm Spearhead from Space and Power of the Daleks, both of which I really enjoy. I still didn't give top marks. Yeah, so Spearhead you gave four point five, I gave four point seven five, mm-hmm. and Power we both gave four point seven five. Yeah, so they're quite high up. And then, of course, Unearthly Child, we gave like 2.5 and 3.5. We've <laughs> <laughs> come a long way since Unearthly Child. Um, but yeah, no, I, I completely get your your reason there. I think, yeah, I think it is a bit weak the way it's like, what do you mean they just fucking disappeared? Like, oh, we were all kind of distracted. And like, mm. you know, I think it's a bit weak, but I don't think, in terms of the connection with the far future story, like mm. the, the, the spin off. I, I, I just assumed they got recaptured down the road and they went to prison for a little while and then they got out. Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. For me, it's not really a big thing. Um, but, yeah, I, I can understand how it's a bit, a bit off-putting. All right. So I think in terms of average season opener, mm. uh it's up there. It's not the highest because obviously we had Time Warrior and the Three Doctors, which were both mm-hmm. fives across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be the next one in line. Yeah. After those two. I like. Um, I I know that. Like. Uh, it, I suppose it is a small bit of a shame that Unearthly Child is a small bit down on the list. Mm-hmm. But again, recently to heart to talk go back to the Hartnell era for a moment. I've seen more and more people treating the first three stories and mm. even sometimes the first four stories of the Hartle run as one arc for that yeah. character. Mm. So if you were to if you were to take all of them together, you'd have a much higher average score, I think. Yeah. But alas, it's but I'd be like I'd be like because you have the beauty of Edge of Destruction, you have the very enjoyable romp of Marco Polo. The introduction of the Daleks, like there's a, there's an awful lot of stuff working for it, but yeah. I just in that first story alone, compared to the other ones that follow for each preceding doctor or next for next doctors, 
just doesn't hold it just doesn't match up shall we say i will say though my call out of i'll try not to give sarah a five in every story like i'm fucking close though <laughs> well like because um, like what do, what do we had you had i had one two and everything else was either it was four yeah 4.75 4.25 4, 4, 4 above okay, uh, yeah. cool. um but you know there's a reason she's my favorite yeah. her stories are really good um, but yeah, I think all in all, though, I think we can both agree a strong opener for John. Yes, or not John, Tom. Tom. Um, yeah. very strong opener for Tom, and I think it's going to be an interesting twelfth season, particularly because like, we know that we're not going to see the unit crew mm. for a while. So mm. I think it's going to be an interesting trip. So, Paddy, why don't you tell us what we have next week? So next week we have to see. How Harry reacts uh, to his first trip in the TARDIS in the Ark in Space. Mm-hmm. Is the Ark evil? I don't know. Just close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.